Meditators, today you will benefit from one of the most thought out Bitcoin bull cases I have ever heard. Tips on how you can start your own business, growth hacking strategies that help grow Uber, Kraken and multiple other successful businesses. Sharing his expertise with us today is Dan Held. He is currently head of growth at Kraken and has previously built and sold companies to blockchain.com and Kraken and worked on growth at Uber. He is a well-known Twitter account and runs a popular newsletter, The Held Report. Not only is Dan a true Bitcoin OG, but he has also been successful in both founding and growing companies. His case for Bitcoin is one of the most thought out I have ever heard and neither of us could contain our excitement when talking about entrepreneurship and building businesses. I absolutely loved recording this episode and believe there is a huge amount of value for everyone. To stay one with the crypto market, sign up and get six free market meditations newsletters a week. You'll find a link in the description below. I am your host, Karush AK, and this is the Market Meditations Podcast. We chat with fascinating people from around the world to figure out how they've built wealth. Market Meditators, welcome to another episode of the Market Meditations podcast. Today we have with us Dan Held, uh, here to talk about Bitcoin entrepreneurship and wherever else the conversation may go. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Really appreciate you having me, and I'm super excited to dig in on the entrepreneurship side. I don't get to talk about that very often in crypto, so happy to cover some Bitcoin topics, but I think that entrepreneurship side is going to be really fun too. Um, well, dedicate a huge amount of this conversation there and the fact that you're excited makes me excited because you are a hugely successful entrepreneur and I say that without intent to flatter though it may um and I think the listeners are going to gain so much from it so before we get there let's start with a little bit of um background specifically to do with Bitcoin Dan how did you find Bitcoin and uh why are you so passionate about it yeah, so my buddy paid me back for a beer with a Cassatius coin. Now, a Cassatius coin are those gold coins that you see in all those news articles, the really shiny ones. Uh, you would peel back a label and that would display your private key. So um, that was my first Bitcoin was one of those. And it was around, Bitcoin was around $8. So he paid me back for a beer with this Cassatius coin. And I started, to, this is in 2012, and I started to dig in a little bit more about what was Bitcoin, uh, what was valuable about it. And, you know, it really resonated with me at the time finding the 21 million hard cap and understanding its monetary policy because I had been studying finance in undergrad during the 2008 crisis. So I was a finance guy who saw this happen, saw all the textbooks, all the professors, everyone on TV, not know what they're talking about as the world crumbled around them. And that shook my fundamental trust in the government and money. And when Bitcoin came around, I was like, this is the solution for that problem. So that was kind of my aha moment was 2012-ish. And then 2013, I moved to San Francisco, actually got relocated at, well, when I was working on my finance job. And out here, I got involved in the Bitcoin meetup. Bitcoin meetup is a place where everyone went once a month to go grab beers and talk Bitcoin. At the time, there was only a dozen of us and a cooler of PBRs, which for those who aren't from the United States, PBRs are a very low quality beer. It's a very, <laughs> a very bad beer. It's, it's, it doesn't taste very good. It's very cheap. And, um, you know, Bitcoin is around $10 in 2013, uh, January 2013. At the time, there was uh, Jesse Powell from Kraken, uh, Charlie Lee, Litecoin, Brian and Fred from Coinbase, Jed McCaleb from Stellar Ripple. And it was this really tight knit, small community. And uh, March 2013 hit, the price went to $260. And all of a sudden, there was like 150 people in this place. 
and there were VCs slanging out business cards. And that was the moment that I decided to build my first product. So I built the most popular mobile app in 2013 called ZeroBlock. ZeroBlock was a real-time market data and newsfeed aggregator. That doesn't sound too cool nowadays that we have like Blockfolio and there's a hundred different apps that do this. But in 2013, we were the slickest, easiest to use um, and most popular one out there. Part of that was due to some of the growth techniques. So my, we'll get to my um, later stage career here in a second, but this was kind of the inception of me learning about growth. So user acquisition for my product. And um, we ranked number two for the keyword Bitcoin in the app store. And due to techniques I used, that's how we got to that spot which allowed us to get hundreds of free installs a day. So, you know, some of these growth techniques that I learned there and, and that enthralled me that led to my long-term career, long-term career in growth. Zero Block got bought by blockchain.com. I was the first non-support team hire and outside of Nick Carey, the original CEO. So I was the first PM there. I uh, worked there for a year. Then I worked at ChangeTip, which did micropayments over, over social media. And then I went to go work at Uber on Rider Growth under Andrew Chen, who is a GP at Andreessen Horowitz now, and then over on the growth marketing team. Then I uh, created my company, Interchange. Uh, Post-Uber, uh, Interchange was a crypto accounting software company. We got bought by Kraken. At Kraken, I stood up the growth marketing and product marketing teams. And on growth marketing, that's currently what I run now. Uh, we are a combined growth marketing, growth product team, which is really, really fun. So my background is uh, I've got two exits in this space. I've got a bunch of kind of like early stage hustle, scrappy, scrappy hustle. And then I also have moving from 10 million to 100 million users at Uber. So I've kind of got both mindsets. In, in the growth space, we refer to these as like prospector mindset, where you're like a prospector for gold and you're trying to find like little gold nuggets. And then you've got like the machine, the mining machine operator who operates like a big sluice. And so I've got both of those, which I think is kind of a rare background. And then, you know, a little tangential uh, thing to append to this is uh, my experience writing and, and talking about Bitcoin, which I think is very topical for this conversation. Uh, two years ago, I started to write longer form medium articles about uh, different Bitcoin topics, Bitcoin's origin, Bitcoin's, um, Bitcoin's utility, uh, Bitcoin mining. And these became popular, um, which also fed into my social media brand in terms of my awareness of who I am and what do I do. And so over the last couple of years have really sort of grown visibility wise in the crypto space as a, uh, you could say someone who loves, <laughs> really loves Bitcoin. Uh, I write, I've written a ton of different articles about Bitcoin. And so uh, that's my personal brand uh, you know, that works in parallel with my, my work at Kraken. Well, you didn't plug it, so I will. Guys, make sure to check out the Held Report. Um, Dan's, I mean, you, you heard that intro. The experience is incredible. Uh, the you, You've been at Bitcoin since like arguably the beginning. I mean, um, one of the true OGs and uh, you stuck this entire time all the way through. Um, the first question that comes to mind is, did, did your faith ever waver? Did you ever, did your hands ever fold from the beginning? Yeah, look, I mean, no one, no one's perfect, right? So uh, I wasn't a perfect hodler. You know, I, I experimented with altcoins in the beginning. I tried to day trade a little bit poorly. <laughs> I didn't do very well. Um, you know, most of my, I bought my first Bitcoin at $10, but most of them were bought at like 100, which doesn't sound like a lot. But, you know, I, I actually thought I was late because everyone I knew had gotten in at a dollar. <laughs> I mean, you got to remember like the big, the big guys back then were like Eric Voorhees, Charlie, Charlie Shrem, and they had, they had huge stacks of coins. Right. And I was like, man, Bitcoin's so expensive now it's a hundred dollars, you know? So I, uh, you know, one, I, I traded poorly. 
to trade some altcoins. Like for example, I mined PrimeCoin. PrimeCoin's proof of work finds Prime numbers. Um, so I mined a whole block of PrimeCoin. Um, you know, so I explored around, I tried out different things. Um, and then, you know, over time, my resolve as a Bitcoin hodler became stronger and stronger. The more and more I understood Bitcoin, the more time elapsed and I saw what had come and gone. And the more I understood too about product and how Bitcoin solves a problem really, really well. So all of those combined kind of led to my hands becoming uh, diamond hands over the years. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to say I was born with diamond hands, even though my last name is held. Um, <laughs> I, I had to, uh, had to learn it over time. Uh, also, you know, I was like, uh, let's see, I'm 33 now, you know, I was like 25, didn't have a ton of money. So, you know, I wasn't a very experienced investor, uh, to where, you know, you had these big gains in Bitcoin and you're like, Whoa, this is, this is really intense. And then the emotion of that becomes even more intense because it's your first X amount of dollars that you've made investing. Um, so I experienced and grew with Bitcoin over the last, you know, eight years that have been really, really eight, nine years that have been super involved. And so it's pretty incredible to kind of be molded by that experience. I've, I've often joked, like <laughs> I've seen my net worth go up exponentially and drop 80% three times. <laughs> That's, it's crazy because uh, 2013 had two bubbles. What did it went from 10 to 260 and then down to like 80 from 80 to 1200 and back down and then uh, to 200 and then 200 to 20,000 and back down. So I, uh, that's a lot to go through mentally for someone who's only 33. That is a experience. That is experience at a hardened psyche built on the battlefield itself. And for a lot of people, Bitcoin is that gateway into the financial world, into investing, into um, monetary policy, uh, all these topics which are overlooked in school, um, disgustingly overlooked. I mean, people come out with no idea how to build wealth for themselves. That's why it's important that um, we do what we do, make these newsletters that help point people a little bit into the right direction, or at least open their eyes to this new possibility, this new uh, thing which could replace and make a better system. Now, to me, that definition extends beyond Bitcoin and more towards these new infrastructures and systems we can build. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? That's a great question around, you know, is Bitcoin the end all to be all or is there more to it? I think at the core root of any financial system, you need a sound money. You need a stable base. Likening it to a construction of a big skyscraper, you've got to have that concrete foundation. So yes, I think there are bigger structures that we can build on top of that solid foundation, being that sound money, being a Bitcoin, being like that gold 2.0. And I'm very excited about that. I think the way that Bitcoiners differ from Ethereum folks is that we think that a base level of the financial system should be incredibly robust. You know, we don't want to be swapping out concrete for steel after the skyscraper has been built. And I do, I think that's where a lot of Bitcoiners are misunderstood by the Ethereum folks, where I think we all largely agree we'd like to see the entire financial system moved onto, onto Bitcoin, onto Ethereum. There are a lot of structural issues in doing that. First and foremost, we need that base layer, that native asset on chain, you know, being a Bitcoin, being Ethereum. That native asset needs to have different parameters that make it solid and trustworthy. For example, like a trustworthy and compelling monetary policy. Uh, trustworthy and compelling, um, you know, proof of work versus proof of stake. You know, these things are all critical to that concrete being trustworthy to build the system on top of. 
Uh, when we look at like pulling the rest of the financial system into these decentralized sort of solutions, like uh, why the why they mentioned being DeFi, you know, there's a lot of issues that occur with like, for example, I can't pull um, a piece of land and bring that onto the blockchain because when I do, it requires a trusted third party to validate existing, that the land exists in reality. And then also, um, even if the blockchain says that someone else owns it, in reality, someone else could own it. It doesn't matter what's on the digital register. Also, you have like local governments who have their own networks or their own ledgers that oversee ownership. Um, so only I, I believe in the you know in the beginning here, only native native digital assets can be on a blockchain. Anything that's in the real world requires that validation issue, and that can be really really uh, really really tricky. Especially since we're using a blockchain, because <laughs> at the end of the day, you want final settlement. And if you can't have final settlement, then why are we using a blockchain? Um, so. Yes, I think I do believe that Bitcoin is the start of something bigger, but that's being bigger on Bitcoin. Um, I don't believe that Bitcoin is the start of more assets. I think Bitcoin is the singular asset that will accrue almost all of the value over time. Um, and the reason being, you know, we can look at it from like what problem is Bitcoin solving? And Bitcoin's probably solving the problem of trust with money or trust with store of value assets. And it solves that very elegantly. And that problem that it's solving is gigantic. And this goes back to my products and growth mindset. What problem are we solving? We're solving the problem of trust and storing value. And then we're like, okay, well, how big is this solution? You know, with Uber, we look at like, okay, we have um, how many taxis? What's the taxi market in the world? What's car ownership market? And that gives you an idea of something called TAM, total addressable market. With Bitcoin, it's total addressable market is all stores of value. $10 trillion worth of gold, $60 trillion worth of fiat money, $100 trillion worth of sovereign bonds, $200 trillion worth of real estate. That's the problem that Bitcoin is solving for, which is the largest TAM in the world. It's all stores of value. So I think when people, they often look at Bitcoin, they go, oh, wouldn't it be boring if Bitcoin was only it? If that was the only thing. And I'm like, that'd be incredible. It's solving the number one pain point in the world, and it's solving the biggest TAM. And so I think that when I talk about value accrual, that's what I mean. All of that value being flowing into Bitcoin, you know, certainly are there other really interesting use cases for blockchain technology? Sure. And we've experimented over 10,000 of them, but in the, in the nine years I've been in the space, um, you know, we see very few of those accrue long-term value. I think we see a lot of hype and that's interesting. And I certainly want to encourage people to experiment. So by no means am I like, Bitcoin is the end all be all. Like I've tried other things and I continually kind of check out what else is out in the space. Um, but I keep coming back to Bitcoin as I find that like the most compelling thing that we're solving for now, it's very much along that path of solving these problems and it's doing it very, very elegantly. Um, wow, so much to take in there. I, I've got two immediate follow on questions from what you've said. Uh, the first one will be, uh, do you see Bitcoin on, on what time frame do you see Bitcoin becoming a global reserve currency when it just takes that entire market? And then secondly, then what is the solution? How do we uh, build on top of Bitcoin to do other things like loan money, uh, borrow money, uh, collateralize? And uh, the, how do we bring the financial system over the stuff we operate on in society and need um, in a way which stays true to the problems Bitcoin solves? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, I, I'll answer the second one first, which is that we have to first look at what these, you know, I think like 
a lot of the Ethereum DeFi applications are sort of uh, self-reinforcing self of, it's all just for trading. It's trading native assets, it's trading these tokens, and that's just flowing back. And then borrowing against your asset is just to buy more tokens. <laughs> sort of a self-referential loop here of just like trading and trading and trading. You can't really pull in real world assets. That doesn't make much sense. So you kind of exclude equities, bonds, or anything else. Um, so just all these native assets, and it's more of just speculative feedback loop, which isn't a bad or good thing. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's like out there to like solve a huge, huge problem. A lot of a lot of folks who go do lending over collateralized lending with DeFi, they're like, well, this solves the KYC AML problem. I'm like, not really. People who have a problem with KYC AML are typically people who are unbanked and underbanked and they don't have assets to borrow against. You know, so it's it's not really being empathetic with the user problem. Um it's more of just for speculative trading, which is totally fine. And I think speculative is my maybe a heavy, heavily loaded term, um, more just for trading activity, I think would be a better way to put it. So, you know, they go, oh, well, it's solving the problem for the unbanked and underbanked. So I'm like, they don't have assets to borrow against. Um, and they're like, well, you know, it's solving the problem of KYC AML. And I'm like, well, if I'm a big institutional player and all my trades are on chain, everyone can see that anyways. And there's no need for me to try to hide my $10 million trade. Like everyone's going to see it, you know, yeah, sure. It's not KYC'd on that trade itself, but any authority can parse through the blockchain and, and analyze it and be like, cool, we can see that you traded here. Um, so I'm not really sure if I buy that argument either. Um, what is interesting is that it reduces counterparty risk, you know, when it comes to other trade uh, trading participants. So that is certainly interesting, um, you know, and I think there's going to be kind of an organic trade-off between like DeFi and CeFi, where a lot of people in DeFi automatically assume that everyone wants these parameters of like non-KYC AML or that that's an important parameter. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And that's where like the bigger institutional folks, like that huge amount of volume that's on lit or centralized exchanges, they don't care as much. They're like, cool, we're going to get KYC. We don't care. They're more worried about counterparty risk. So that's where I think the DeFi community could probably pitch it a little bit better of being more counterparty risk oriented. At the same time, there's a lot of like hidden counterparty risk with DeFi. Um, you've got zero day exploits. You've got other things that no one knows about or game theoretic exploits. Um, so I, and that goes back to the foundational element that I was mentioned before. Bitcoin is trying to be, it's, it's kind of boring. I understand it's kind of boring. It's not moving fast, but you need that to be the base layer of the financial system. Now, Ethereum fits Silicon Valley's mindset, which I, I've been here the last eight years. And Silicon Valley is like, we need to move fast and break things. We got to hustle. If we don't launch an update to our app, we're going to be taken out by Facebook, by Uber. And so that mindset is the Ethereum community's mindset, which I appreciate and what I do on a daily basis. That mindset applied to money is a dangerous thing because you can't be constantly changing it. Um, so DeFi is interesting. I think it's interesting. I think it's it could be solving some problems other than just speculative trading, uh, which again, speculation, I don't mean that as a bad word. I just mean it as like, it's just typical trading activity. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think Bitcoin is, I think building this on Bitcoin, you know, there's different philosophies with how this is built on Bitcoin versus other protocols. Bitcoin is solving again, that store value TAM. It doesn't need to do anything else. It's kind of like saying, I wish Apple would also get into oil production. You're like, well, Apple builds great computers and they're already doing that really, really well. And people are like, but yeah, but what if it could? What if they did that too? Wouldn't that be awesome? And I'm like, kind of. Bitcoin's very, very good at being a store of value money. There are ways to do some DeFi-esque um, applications on top of Bitcoin. 
and those are being built out very slowly. So I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Bitcoin does not have to do those to go win. Bitcoin is already winning the store of value race, and that is the biggest race to win. There are these other side races to do these other things. And, you know, Bitcoin, I think from a product perspective, makes total sense that the community and that the developers think this way because it's like uh, it's like a spaceship, right? So like we launched a rocket, Bitcoin got out of the atmosphere, it went past the moon and it's on its way to Mars, right? Hmm. You know, we didn't make any changes to it and do that many changes to it along the way because if you do, you could blow up. And I think these other communities are like, well, let's swap out the rocket engines mid-flight and we haven't even gotten out of the atmosphere yet. And it's like, cool, if that works out, you know, you might, you might get to the moon faster than Bitcoin did, which is awesome. But if it doesn't, it's catastrophic. And so I think the Bitcoin versus other communities, they just have very different mindsets around development and what the development means for the success of the protocol. Um, that, that was the second part of the question, but there's so much to unravel and unpack there. Uh, it's a very well presented argument and um, it almost reframes the problem as a whole. It's uh, the, the Apple example you get gave really helped explain it in that Bitcoin is going to solve the store of value. We can have centralized finance with that. We can have decentralized finance. That's completely separate and nothing to do with this issue here. When it comes to the Bitcoin argument, it's like, who's going to be that store of value, uh, which uh, yeah, it's so logical and um, such sound reasoning that I don't really have a counterpoint to it. Then my next question would be, um, what sort of time frame do you see this happening under? And at what point would you acknowledge a competitor could take Bitcoin's place or role in this? Yeah, so Bitcoin, and I think that was your first question that I didn't answer, so yeah. sorry about that. But yeah, the Bitcoin's adoption, in terms of that adoption curve, Bitcoin moves through different stages. So a new money has to first be stored, has, first to have value stored in it. So a lot of people lament and, and, and moan about how Bitcoin isn't used for everyday payments. Well, you can't have that stage of a money until everyone holds it and believes in it and stores value in it. You can't pay for something unless you hold it, right? <laughs> and so the, the medium of exchange crowd, they weren't necessarily wrong. They were just way too early, which is the same as being wrong. Um, and that's where, you know, the community split with Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin. Um, you know, so the way that this looks is it's a multi-decade thing, at least I think. Who knows how it all plays out, but... You know, I'm 33. I was the first analog to digital age cohort. So I grew up with cassette tapes. Now I've got streaming audio. The younger age cohorts don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. They're like, we've been in a fully digital world this whole time. The younger age cohorts, including mine, none of us want to buy gold. We want to buy Bitcoin. And so you've got this younger age cohort market penetration of Bitcoin that's very, very high. And then you've got the boomers and everyone else that are dying off. There's a saying that science moves one funeral at a time. Uh, same with like a new money, right? Like you're replacing a 4,000 year old money gold. <laughs> it's not going to be just replaced overnight because people build trust and faith and it's in movies and it's in conversation and and people choose to store value in it. And we don't have any record of how gold became a money. You know, it just became a money and there's nothing. <laughs> we just assume that it probably followed a path as well of people be, probably some speculation as to will it become a money or not. It happened 4,000 years ago. So I'm not sure what records are even left and basically nothing. So with Bitcoin, we are going through the store of value era where it's being recognized globally as a store of value, which is an incredible achieving moment for Bitcoin. I mean, this is this is a currency that, or this is an asset that I got into 
in the beginning when I was considered a lunatic. I mean, my <laughs> friends and family, dates, coworkers, all made fun of me. Everyone in the mainstream press, they're all like, have fun with your dirty internet money. You know, <laughs> like it was considered very unsavory uh, for right. some time. To see, yeah, to see it come from that to now, where Bitcoin is globally recognized as like a digital gold by like the chairman of the Federal Reserve, by all the macro traders out there, by Tesla and all these corporate treasuries. That's incredible. And Bitcoin has started to achieve its status as gold 2.0. Like that is incredible. Um, again, I cannot emphasize enough how crazy we looked eight to 10 years ago. I mean, we looked insane. People, people, I mean, we were, we had funny money for the internet and now it is actually being recognized. I, I still can't emphasize how big of a deal this is. Um, after we go through this era, so we have market penetration where a wide number of people as a percentage of the population hold Bitcoin. And as Bitcoin in its final era has become, final era becomes boring and stable, um, Bitcoin's not going to go up 10x for forever. Eventually it kind of stable, becomes stable and levels off. Bitcoin, after all, is a digital gold. Gold is not very exciting as an investment. It's a safe haven asset where I park my wealth when I don't want to take more risk. That's how Bitcoin will behave in the final era. In that era, that's when it starts to become also useful as a medium of exchange and unit of account. That becomes your everyday payment method. It becomes what we price items in at the grocery store. So we're, we're a little ways away from that. I believe, and this is totally subjective, but based on how long it's taken to get to here and how long I think it'll take to get further, we're talking like another at least five to 10 years of, of more older people dying away, younger people buying more and more Bitcoin and believing in it and developing trust in it. And then we get to a market penetration of certain countries where maybe it hits like 50 to 60% of the population holds Bitcoin. And now two participants, one's selling something, one's buying something, they only want to transact in Bitcoin. That's when it switches to the medium of exchange and unit of account era. So I think we're a ways away in terms of its life cycle. Um, and then what was the second question? Um, I mean, I, I think you pretty much answered both questions, which is uh, why and how long it would take, uh, which is fantastic because um, uh, to me, I didn't come in at those early stages. So I can only imagine how surreal it must be to have that small room, uh, small room of, to quote yourself, lunatics who now suddenly, you guys were right. You guys took the step, made the belief. So thank you. Thank you, Dan, for um, helping push this as an OG, as part of those first believers and getting us to where we are now. I can't wait until hopefully I can push this for the next 10 years and help have my small part in global adoption and then see people transacting it over cash. Like, I don't accept these dollars. Give me some Bitcoin. It'd be amazing to see. Um, and man, I could talk to you about Bitcoin all day, but we need to dedicate some time to your entrepreneurial journey. I can't express how excited I am to uh, ask you about it because Dan, you have had tremendous success in this area. Um, I mean, it, I've seen your ability to grow hack firsthand. I've seen you grow your Twitter at an unbelievable rate. I mean, those numbers were absolutely flying up. Uh, and you, in your intro, you definitely did give us a uh, introduction into the different uh, experiences you had. And um, yeah, I guess the first place I'd start is why did you choose such an entrepreneurial route? What part of your personality led you down that path? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to give a concrete answer, but if I were to, you know, kind of pull together a, a guess, you know, my, my dad's very entrepreneurial. He had his own accounting firm. 
Now, granted, accountants aren't typically very risky, but that's risky for an accountant <laughs> to, to go out on his own. Um, so maybe that was the base of it. So seeing that in, in my father, but I think it was a combination of that and the friends I surrounded myself with. A lot of my friends were more entrepreneurial minded. I've had a, a really good friends in, in high school and college who started their own businesses. We tried things together. For example, I, me and a buddy started a business where we stained front doors in Dallas, Texas. That's where I grew up. Now in Texas, the heat is very, very hot. And so the front doors on these really nice homes, they're huge doors, huge doors. And they, they start to crack and peel. And so we had a technique where we used marine varnish. So marine varnish is used on boats. And that as a that as a varnish lasts a lot longer and has a really nice shine to it. So we would go door to door and sell <laughs> sell front door staining solutions. Uh, so we we would do that and we would make four hundred dollars a day doing that, which was pretty wild. Um, and so, but you'd have to knock on a hundred doors before someone said yes. So there's a whole crazy list of different various jobs I've had, various entrepreneurial efforts, and then you know for me I always was really into tech. So I. I I leaped at the opportunity when my investment firm in Dallas said, can we relocate you to San Francisco? I'm like, yes, this sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, going to, I went to, you know, out in San Francisco, I would go to three to five meetups a week. So meetups are on various topics. You have Bitcoin, drones, uh, VR, AR. Um, I've met friends. I've gone on dates from people, uh, girls I've met there. You know, it's a really crazy social scene in Silicon Valley. It's a very small world. So I fully let, you know, kind of leaned into that while being out here. I'm, I'm moving to Texas in a couple months, but while out here, I just definitely leaned into like, I want to meet as many people as possible. And then just kind of like an unlimited thirst for learning around product and marketing. And all of this kind of came together too, where like I, I, when I built my first product, I became obsessed about it. And I think that's what it takes to build something great. When I built zero block, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't a product person. I didn't even know what the term meant. But what I wanted to do was build a product for myself that I wanted to use. And then I was like, how do I help people find it? It's actually that simple. The essence of all tech is simply distilled into that. Build something that people want and then help them find it. That's it. I mean, that now that's overly simplifying a million other more complex things. But that's what led me to, you know, I'd go formalize these skills later at companies like Uber and, and these other crypto startups. But it has to start with that obsession of solving a problem, solve a problem, solve it elegantly, and then help people find it. Whether they're searching for you in the app store, they're perusing through Twitter, they're searching on Google. These are all different places that you can help people go find you. And so I think all of that together, that I think that kind of growth mindset is just intuitive to me. And it might have started with maybe my, you know, like I said, my upbringing combined with just my personality. I just, I love growth because it's, it's a very, it's a much more creative function where you're constantly looking for a way to get an edge. And I, I think that's what makes it so fun. Wow. Um, so many key traits compiled into one answer, the ability to accept failure from every door you knocked on time and time after time. Again, uh, the ability to spot problems and provide a solution. Um, you also, the fundamental curiosity, there are a lot of people who would have said, no, I'm quite comfortable here. I don't want to go to San Francisco. And then when they got to San Francisco, they probably wouldn't have been networking, meeting people, um, interacting with people, developing those uh, social skills and connections, because I mean, you can't do this alone. I mean, some people can, you can definitely be a solo uh, entrepreneur, but it's so much more fun and sustainable with a good team behind you. Uh, oh, so many directions I want to go. And I guess my first one is, yes. 
You know, I'd like to tack on something to this that if I don't bring it up now, I might forget it. Please. A lot of this is, you know, I like, and it's something new I've kind of been thinking about. You've got, you've got like an outcome in life and in, in your, here's like what your life could be. You know, you've got like, and I don't know, I don't know if people listening to this know what Black-Scholes model is. A Black-Scholes model is essentially a random walk of all potential outcomes from this moment. And so you've got kind of a narrow banded range of what could happen. Like, I'm probably not going to become a baker or a policeman or join the military. You know, so we can eliminate a lot of what won't happen, right? What's really interesting, I think, that I've discovered in my development is the adding variability in your outcome is a really interesting way to improve your scenario. So um, let's say you are in a, just a, you've got a job and your job has certain levels and you're at level one. There's level two, three, four, five, you know, senior manager, VP. It's a very linear path. Like your, your outcome are, are, is like narrowly defined in this very linear path. But like you and I here, we've created a personal brand and we've created a personal brand and that increases the variability of our outcome. We weren't sure what was going to happen. When I started tweeting, going on podcast, I wasn't sure if I was going to be successful. Neither did you, but we were. And that variability has led to a bunch of different really cool scenarios where, for example, I talked to a gold executive today at a really big gold company. Um, I also talked to, for example, Michael Saylor said I was influential in helping influence him get into Bitcoin. Um, and you look at all these and you're like, whoa, like there's a, and half of my growth team heard about the roles I had open because of Twitter. You know, so the variability of this outcome, I think, is really cool. Um, to where I would very much encourage people to think about how do I increase the variability of my outcome without taking too much risk? Because certainly I could quit what I'm doing now and become a fireman. But now I've taken on a lot of risk. Like if I don't do well in the fireman role, can I go back or can I pivot? You know, with this, like I've got my full-time job with Kraken, but I spun up my, my personal brand, which increased the variability of my outcome, which increased, you know, so instead of this narrow banded range of outcomes, now I've got this. And those that wider banded range of outcomes is, I think, really cool. I, I don't know how positive they will be, but I know it increases the chances of something really big happening. That is such an incredible um, model at which to view your path. If you're climbing up a corporate ladder, there's a very set amount of possibilities that are going to happen. And for some people, that's great. Uh, I add on to the mental model, if you don't mind me extrapolating on it, that normally as you increase variability you're going to increase risk as well so it's very important early in your career to increase that variability as much as you can and just iterate in the right direction it doesn't matter how fast you're moving up as long as you're moving up with a wide variability uh, i'd bring in uh, nasim taleb's barbell strategy which is to um have something to slowly move you up and then take on an extreme amount of risk outside of that as well, which is precisely the model you've presented, increasing that variability. I don't know if you have anything to add on to that um, stride extrapolation. I think that was a great addition to my thoughts. And um, yeah, you know, in, I would push back a little bit on increasing variability may or may not increase your risk. And if you time it right, or if you play it right, you might actually be able to increase the variability of your positive outcomes and minimize some downside ones. For example, us spending time to go build out content. So we both have newsletters, you know, with the held report, writing that takes a certain amount of time. 
I've, that time is now gone that I spent to write it. So my risk there is my time, but it's not too bad. I mean, certainly there's other risks too, but I think, and I want to make this like a really lengthy conversation about risk and return. Certainly it's not too risky though. I didn't spend a thousand dollars to go write each, each newsletter. Um, you know, so I think you can try to minimize risk while also maximizing for outcome. Uh, an example of something that might be more risky and higher variability variability would be like a highly in a capital intensive new startup and you take all of your savings and put it into it. That's a high variability outcome, but also a high, like a very high risk too, because now you've got all your capital into one endeavor. And if that doesn't pan out, you could be in a weird spot. So yeah, I, that's the only thing I would push back on, but really appreciate the rest of your thoughts on it. Thank you for pushing back on that because I, again, I couldn't agree more with you. A mentality, I don't think I've ever spoken back, but I love to adopt. And I didn't read about this anywhere. It's just something that's always worked well for me. Anytime I take on a venture that could increase that variability, I always think if I lose, how do I win? And to leverage an example of that is um, when I first got into trading, I thought, okay, I see some friends who are making some fantastic return with arbitrage bots. So I don't quite have the capital right now to hire someone to make one for me. I'll try make one myself. If it doesn't work, I learn Python and I get a gateway into coding. That's my win if I lose. I love it. That's my win if I lose. I, I love that. I love that quote. I think it's phenomenal. I think that sums it up perfectly. Beautiful. I, I love that you agree. And I, um, okay, let, let's let's dive deeper into this because this is exciting and this is fun. Um, you've had experience at both early stage startups and you've come into big companies and grown them exponentially. Um, they must be, and this is someone who hasn't come into a big company and grown it exponentially. I imagine they're worlds apart. Are they worlds apart? Are the core principles the same? Great question. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I bring up the prospector versus uh, mining, like mining company sluice operator. They're, they are two different mindsets. And that's what makes me, I think, a somewhat unique growth person. It's very rare to find both. Prospector, you're hunting for nuggets. You're going around, you're trying to find little things. And I'll come, I'll give you a couple examples here, which are pretty fun. I think the prospector ones are a little bit more fun because they're very quintessential growth hack is what people call this. So one of them was, you know, app store optimization. So I figured out how to keyword stuff the title of my app to jam as many keywords as I could in it. Um, and so what happens is in the app store at that time in 2013, your title string could be 255 characters, but they were truncated after 80. So in the app store, you wouldn't be able to see the other 80 to 250 characters. So in there, I just keyword stuffed a bunch of keywords about Bitcoin. And then we ranked number two for the keyword Bitcoin amongst other many other keywords that allowed zero block to succeed. And that's what opened up my mind to growth and growth hacking. These are the more prospector mindset sort of things. Then for an app that I created for fun called Hover, it was the first app in the app store for uh, that had no fly zones for drone pilots. I fly drones for fun. That's my hobby. And um, so we built it because no one else had built it at the time. And it was pretty easy using some open source mapping that was available. Um, with Hover, I signed up to 120 Facebook groups. This is in the year 2015. And these were groups that were created for people who owned a specific model of drone. They liked to talk about it. They were great groups because people shared tips and tricks and how to fix things, modifications, software issues. I, at the time, there was almost no permission. So I could join all of these 
And admins really weren't a thing back then. Eventually, admins became pretty heavy-handed over the years as they as people other people copied my technique and spammed. But I would copy paste a link of uh, my product and I'd go, "Hey everyone, I'm a drone pilot. I built this for everybody else too. It's free. Check it out here." I got ten thousand installs from that strategy, and the retention rate was higher than my organic app store acquisition because these groups are highly targeted. It's people who know exactly what they want because they are all drone pilots. Um, so it meant that their affinity for my product was very high. So those are some examples of like really crazy growth hacks. Um, and then you've got the more sluice operator mindset where I've got 50 million Sorry, people now, coming to, to the app. You very quickly, prospector yeah. and sluice. Could you define those terms for us? Yeah, prospector is like a gold mining term for someone who might take it, who might be hunting for gold nuggets on the ground. Um, or taking, you know, going and panning in the river to find little gold nuggets. A sluice operator is someone who has like a big, they have a big mine. They have a hundred people that work there. They're, they're, they've got machines specialized to dig the ore out of the earth and they have crushers. And then they have someone who runs the ore through water and separate, that's the sluice to separate the gold, the gold from the, from the uh, rock. You know, that, that's a different mindset. So it's more of a, a giant manufacturer. You know, it's a, it's the, the single growth hackery mindset versus the big, big, uh, I'm trying to get 50 million people to sign up for Uber. So yeah, the great, great highlighting that. Cause I think I, you know, that is a little bit jargony sluice. May, people may not be aware of what that means. So, you know, at that, at that more sluice operator, big mind, um, mindset, you know, we're talking about some crazy things here. So I, uh, my initial role was app store optimization. So I, every single, it, no matter what country you're in, if you saw Uber, uh, the Uber app or Uber Eats, everything you saw on that app store page, I configured from 2016 through 2017. So when you landed on that page, we're talking 50 million people plus like a month were coming to these pages across the world, like tons of eyeballs coming to this page, 50 million people, right? If I improve the conversion rate 1%, so very few of those convert to an install. So it's a view to an install is the conversion rate that we're talking about. Very few of those people who view it go install it. So let's say that's that's 5% and then I bump it up another percent. That's a huge amount of new installs, which means more riders, which means Uber makes a lot more money. And so that's where I call that more the sluice operator mindset is they're optimizing, they're tweaking the sluice to get out 1% more gold, but that's a lot of gold. Um, and so... That mindset is a little bit different than the prospector who's kind of hunting for those free opportunities and they don't come by super often. It's more of like, an, uh, you know, for the trading analogy for y'all, more of like a, a, a short-term arbitrage. It's a short-term arbitrage that you see open and you take advantage of it. And the sluice is more like, how do we market make? You know, so I'm, I don't know if that's a proper analogy, but I'm, I'm trying to make it relevant for trading. Um, so yeah, it's really fun to have both. I actually enjoy both very well. And in my role at Kraken, Kraken's in between those smaller startups and an Uber. So it's kind of fun because I'm filling in the gaps of, of my knowledge and, and uh, execution that I didn't have before. So it's been it's been a blast. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, quick, quick word. I'm absolutely loving. I, I don't know if you can tell, but I can barely contain my excitement because it's also rare that I get someone so entrepreneurial minded and a little less trading and investing and crypto minded. So uh, th this is incredible. Um, that that is such a great breakdown of the differences between that sluice and prospect and mindset. But I, I'm going to bring up something you said earlier, which is you took, did I, did I hear this right? 10 million to a hundred million for Uber? 
these are rough approximations. I'm giving more of like a banded range of, of ha having people conceptualize what Uber was at when I joined-ish in terms of millions into the next level of millions. I'm not going to say that I single-handedly did that, nor <laughs> was it exactly from 10 million to 100 million, but it was that general range of, of eight-figure eight figure user numbers to nine-figure. That being said, that's definitely not a 1% or 3% increase. What was the difference here? How was that extreme level of exponential growth managed to be acquired? And what was the mindset behind that? Yeah, I mean, these are huge teams, right? Like, and that's where people become very specialized on marketing teams at scale. So for instance, I focused on app store pages. Then we had a whole team focused and then eventually I built out a team where I had three people focused just on app store pages. And then we had people focused on the website. So you go to uber.com. And this is how we think about it at Kraken as well. We want to make sure we take those eyeballs to signups. So people land on the page. We, we explain to them why Kraken is valuable and we get them to go sign up and go buy Bitcoin. And so these teams become hyper-specialized and very large. So everyone's on this big sluice. Someone's working on the sluice. Someone's working in the, in the mine and someone's working on the ore cart, pulling the ore out of the mine. So in the same analogy, growth teams, what we focus on is we look at that user journey. So we start with the awareness level. I've heard about Kraken, but I haven't considered a Kraken and taking them through those stages of, okay, I'm going to consider Kraken. So we, we look at where users hear about our product, where they could hear about our product, make sure we're there, get them from the awareness stage to consideration and then get them through consideration to landing on our app store page or .com and then getting them signed up and then getting them to the aha moment in the product, which is trading for the first time. So buying Bitcoin for the first time. So my team focuses on that user journey, just like how a gold mine might focus on getting the ore all the way to the refinement. So we look at that whole process and each person tweaks their own little lever to improve that flow. So we do the same thing with users. So we go, okay, you know, we have a lot of people coming here, but a lot of them dropping out. Maybe we're not conveying value props of Kraken as well as we could because this web page has a lower conversion rate than our other web pages. So what's going on here? This is what we think about. Um, we think about it as well of going like, cool, SEO wise, are we ranking for XYZ query? Are we able to explain succinctly? And are, are, we, are we outputting content enough to be relevant for these newer conversations? So that's what my team focuses on. And that's why I use the, the sluice and big mind operator concept to refer to what my team and what we did at Uber do. It sounds like as it scales, it's more about multiple small compounding gains all stacked on top of each other versus one big initiative that completely changes everything, though those probably happen in rare isolated events if, say, one of the small changes explodes and becomes something big, uh, which is a... Yeah, and, and to, to dig in on that a little bit more, so, so to dig in on that a little bit more, um, you know, we, we're going to do things that, you know, it depends on the scale of your company. When you're small and you don't have anything to lose and you also have no users, you really need to go prospect and go find those gold nuggets to get enough information and start to get the ball moving. When you're bigger, you've got a ton of folks coming to your website. You've got a ton of traffic coming in. You need to, you need to be really efficient. But I think even at scale, you're still taking, you know, that barbell approach we brought up earlier, you still want to take some bigger risks. So we're not just all, you know, uh, focused on just optimizing our different levers. There's still a very small, there's still some things that we look at that are big, big sort of bets that we can make. Or we think about, we think about leverage of our time. You know, for example, 
Um, you know, right now, maybe we're outputting X amount of SEO pages. Well, what can we do to increase that output even higher? You know, so there is sort of a throughput thing, a throughput and optimization, and then still taking those wild and crazy bets whenever we find them. Because sometimes they exist even at that big company scale, which I've, <laughs> at Uber, we still found a few and we're like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is huge. Like, this is really big. And that I think that's why I like growth so much. It's it's kind of like hunting for gold, you know, and you find it and you're like, wow, this is this is a really cool feeling. And so, yeah, I think I think it's a blast. It's so much fun and I couldn't agree more. Again, having not done it at your scale, I can only speak from my own experience. Um, to switch gears from the growth side and perhaps maybe a little bit related as well, um, what is the difference between building a company to exit as someone who's had multiple successful exits, exits versus building a company normally? Is it the same thing? Do you have to position yourself in any special way? That's a very good question. Um, yes, structurally it matters a lot. So it's now there's a lot of companies out there. I think a lot of, I think people get hung up on thinking that the only startups now are tech companies. There's a bunch of startups. You could have a a sandwich shop or an automobile manufacturer repair shop. So I'm just going to talk about tech startups. Tech startups can be structurally sound or unsound. When they're structurally sound, the way that this works is that you have something called a cap table. Your cap table are a list of investors and a list of employees and how much equity they own. This is a very critical part of having a successful startup. If you do not have your cap table structured properly, that means that the incentivization for people to build and for investors to want to invest can be totally misaligned. So that's an example of a structural problem that can be deadly for fundraising, incentive alignment, or for acquisition. If they see that your cap table is messed up, it's a bad reflection on both you, but also for their potential potential acquisition. Um, So yes, you can very much align things that are, you know, also you could have a whole host of different like issues with your product um, to where when they go digging, they find that your metrics may be misaligned or you're miscalculating things. Um, you can certainly set yourself up for success by having so building in a good process from the beginning. Um, at the same time, no startup is ever fully polished. Everything's duct taped together. If you spent the time to fully polish it, that means you weren't growing as fast as you could. So nowhere is perfect and nowhere is going to have, you know, there's going to be, be some things that are quirky or duct taped together at every single startup. But certainly the cap table, I would say, in tech is probably the number one thing to focus on. Now, again, I'm only referring to high growth tech startups. This is not applicable for every business. Um, But, you know, I think ultimately, too, it's an obsession of solving a problem for your customer, whether you're an automobile repair shop or building the new social app for um, Gen Z, uh, Gen X, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, like you have to be obsessed with solving the problem. Um, and that's going to be evident in your product and people are going to notice that. And that's going to not only drive success for your product, it's going to help you attract talent. It's going to help you grow and then eventually help you get acquired. Was it ever difficult for you, uh, to say goodbye when you exited? Certainly things change, right? Like, um, you know, for zero block, they took my baby. (laughs) It's my baby. It's my product. I, I obsessed around every single pixel of it. I designed it. You know, and to see them maybe not nurture it as much as I would have liked was it was disappointing, of course. But it's theirs now. They can do whatever they want with it. And I think that's the hardest part for founders is you've built this baby and you understand everything about it. You're like, okay, I understand the, exactly why we chose this feature. 
And if you get bought by a bigger company, now they're like, well, you know, we've got all these other priorities and we may or may not care about this being a priority of the company. Um, also, you know, we, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we're discontinuing it because we have a higher priority business over here. Um, or, you know, you come in and all of a sudden, instead of you and three other people having an opinion on what the button color should be, there's 20 people who do, you know, so these are pretty dramatic changes for small startup founders. Um, but you know, it's not necessarily a bad or good thing. It's just more of a, a shift and a shift and change in, in people's uh, vibe and just kind of like culture wise. Um, I enjoy both. I enjoy the bigger company culture. I also enjoy startup culture. There's pros and cons. I can uh, definitely imagine the pain, maybe even some frustration of seeing that product you've nurtured and built not being given the love and attention it deserves. But also, I mean, I'm sure you were aware of that that was going to happen when you did make that big decision. Uh, I, Dan, in case anyone from this conversation has been motivated to go pursue entrepreneurship, I'm going to ask you to do two things before the end of this podcast. Number one, what are your top tips for someone who hasn't quite done it yet, but really wants to get in and start their own business? And secondly, please shill the hell out of your newsletter. All right. Well, yeah, I really, really had a blast talking with you today. I think you understand too. What I, you know, I think we had a really good back and forth there. I think a lot of like podcasters may not grok some of the concepts, but you were fully in vain. So it, it was a ton of fun. I had a blast. Um, some tips I would I would give: Don't risk it all. I think we watch movies and there's we glamorize startups. Startups are really freaking hard. I've been in startups that failed too. You know, in most sometimes you see success, but really they almost failed and barely pulled out success. So don't risk it all. It's a it's risky for a reason because mo I mean you, there's outsized returns for a reason because most of them die and the few that make it make it big. So if you're going to do a startup, don't risk all your money. Movies glamorize it where they're like, and then so do CEOs. It's a classic story, right? Like we're down to our last dime and now I'm a billionaire. Well, there's there's a hundred thousand other people where that didn't happen to them. <laughs> they put in their last dime and then they failed and went bankrupt. <laughs> so just know that there's some survivorship bias with these stories. Don't risk it all. Be able to make sure that you can, it's, it's about survival. Ultimately, startups are about surviving. In crypto, especially, there are so many startups that failed in 2014, 2015, so many that failed in 18, 19. It's about survival, raw, brutal survival. I mean, the amount of things we've all had to do in tech companies, like startups to survive, I mean, excruciating amounts of survival. Like it is the most one of the most excruciating things to go to. Um, and there's different levels of that too, being a either a founder, because then you have all this responsibility on you and you're like, well, what if I can't make payroll? Or what if, what if like, I know this person has a family, what if I have to cut them and there's only four of you, you know, these are really hard decisions. Um, and then, you know, how do you fundraise when, you know, you're still trying to find product market fit, like startups are hard, really, really hard. And we hear about the glamorous stories and it sounds kind of funny where you're like, oh, the Airbnb guys like slept on a couch, like, oh, well, now they're billionaires. Well, there's a whole bunch who sleep on couches and nothing ever happens. <laughs> I, uh. I, I was a mentor at Boost VC, Adam Draper's um, accelerator for a couple of years. And I've seen a lot of crypto startups come and go. And the way that Adam advises them is be the cockroach to survive. You know, cockroaches can survive like a nuclear apocalypse. 
He's like, be the cockroach, just survive at all costs. And honestly, the longer I've been in business, the longer I've realized just surviving alone actually is like half the battle. Like just minimizing your burn rate, just being obsessed about solving a problem. Don't worry about your competitors. Just stay laser focused. And yeah, don't lose that focus. Don't try to build all these shiny things. Just focus singularly on something. That alone is like 50% of the struggle, just survival. Um, which was kind of a revelation to me because I always thought it was like, oh, well, we got to move as fast as we can. And sometimes, you know, I think I think slow and steady wins the race, like slow and steady, but methodically steady. You know, you can't like slow down and go real slow, but more of like, you know, you, you, you've only got so much fuel in the reserve tank to go build. Like your engineers are going to get burnt out. Your designers are going to get burnt out. You're going to burn through capital. So it's like kind of slow and steady wins the race, I think, is the, the TLDR there. And I'd jump in and add to that. It's uh, the reason slow and methodically steady, as you so rightly put, works is also the exponential gains of those compounded, efficient processes and right decisions will outperform any short-term sprint anyone can do. Uh, so just having that patience and just to level in again, how much I loved your cockroach example just there, because not only does it demonstrate the importance of humility, I'm sorry, <laughs> of survival, but also humility, like calling yourself a cockroach. No one wants to do that, but like, it doesn't matter. Your goal isn't to be shiny or to be the best in every single moment. It's just to survive and keep pushing forward. Um, and that we cannot end without a shout out to your newsletter. So please do tell um, anyone who's made it this far into the episode why they should subscribe. So the Held Report is on Substack. So if you Google search the Held Report, you'll find it. I write about Bitcoin, I write about various topics and make it really simple to understand. You want to know about earning a yield on Bitcoin? You want to know about Bitcoin versus Ethereum? I write about these topics and all of these are available for you to go. If you're in the paid subscriber level, you can go check these out. I've got both a free and paid tier. Free tier, you get one free newsletter a month. Paid tier, you get one newsletter a week. So I recommend you check it out. If you liked my thoughts on Bitcoin, go check this out. It is not about entrepreneurship. So if you liked my thoughts about that, you're just going to have to follow me on Twitter, which is uh, twitter.com slash Dan Held. And uh, on there, I, I give my thoughts about entrepreneurship and crypto. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you, you all listening. Um, if you enjoyed it, yeah, give me a subscribe or give me a follow. Dan. Thank you again for all your wisdom and your time. Anyone who's listened to this episode absolutely needs to subscribe to the newsletter. It would be a fantastic compliment to um, most of us, uh, most of our listeners who are already Market Meditations readers um, because we cover very complimentary topics. So absolutely implore everyone does go check that out. And of course, follow us on Twitter for your amazing Bitcoin thoughts. Meditators, that is everything from me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Market Meditations podcast. This was one of my favorite podcasts to date. Dan provided such a well-formed argument for Bitcoin and blockchain technology whilst dropping absolute gold for anyone looking to start their own business. His obsession with entrepreneurship was obvious and that led to a fantastic episode that uh, hopefully you all felt both of our energy and passion. Conversations like this remind me why I love the crypto space so much and why my team and I spend so much time keeping on top of the market. If you want to benefit from our insights into the latest market news, check out my free newsletter, which we send out six times a week for free. To access all of this information, just go to karushak.substack.com. 
I hope you enjoyed that deep dive into entrepreneurship. If you want to learn more about building your own business, check out my podcast with Sam Bagman fried founder and CEO of FTX, another guest whose insights have really helped me on my own journey.